This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everyone, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. We've got an exciting episode today with Dr. J.P. Moreland. We're going to be discussing his new book, Experiencing Miracles. Uh, this hasn't been released at the time of filming this video, but by the time we have, we're have we premiering this video, it'll be on the shelves. So the link's in the description for this. You're going to love this discussion. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. So... You guys don't know this, but we have these like inside conversations with really cool people. Like Elijah Stevens was like, hey, my friend J.P. Moreland, you've got to get him on the show. He's your people. And we're like, okay, let's let's check this out. So we read this book and we're like, he's our, our people, people for sure. <laughs> J.P. is our people. Uh, uh, absolutely a thing. So an exciting episode we have for you today. But before we dive into the discussion, we want to let you know uh, that Remnant Radio is an entirely crowdfunded ministry. If you feel blessed by this episode or other episodes we've made, uh, consider donating. Uh, there's links in the description on both PayPal or Patreon if you want to support the ministry. Uh, you can give a one-time gift on PayPal, or you can give a reoccurring gift on Patreon. So it's five bucks a month, and you get extra content there on Patreon. Uh, one of those things is included is our book club. That's there on Patreon. Uh, we're covering uh, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. We're reading a chapter at a time, going through that book and discussing it as a community. About 40 people jump on every single week. If you want to join in, you don't have to have read any of those prior chapters. The book is like 15, not even 15 minutes, five minutes to read a chapter. Uh, it's so small, so so doable uh, in daily devotion. So check that out if you are so interested. Michael, how yeah. you, you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Just uh, a lot going on for me. I'm making a big move and uh, lots of just transition stuff happening. Literal move. I, your wife I, showed up at the coffee shop today and was like, yeah, we've got to get our stuff out like ASAP. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trying to, uh, to get our house on the market and you know, that's quite a process. So, uh, anyway, but doing really well and, uh, JP really enjoyed this book and guys, I just want you guys to know, uh, Josh and I, I mean, JP, you didn't ask me or Josh for an endorsement on Wounded the back. Deeply. You chose Craig Keener and Josh McDowell. Oh, jeez, Louise. <laughs> So who? who? (laughs) No, but uh, for what it's worth, these guys endorse endorse the book. This book is amazing. It's such an incredible mixture of of apologetic and story. The stories will make you cry, and then and then like a how to manual on how to experience more of this. It's a beautiful book. So really love this. It's coming out next. I guess today. uh, today. It'll be out today. It'll it'll be out yesterday. yesterday. So uh, anyway, so really fascinating, beautiful, wonderful book. So uh, JP, I've talked about your book, but let's talk about you for a minute. Maybe uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners that uh, that are maybe less familiar with you. Uh, Tell us about yourself and how we can connect with your ministry. Well, it's really good to be with you, brothers, and I can uh, feel a camaraderie already. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I was born in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, went to a liberal Methodist church, but nobody knew it was. And uh, I went to the University of Missouri uh, to major in chemistry and uh, Campus Crusade, now called Crew, led me to Christ my junior year after I became persuaded that Christianity had evidence behind it. And uh, I decided that I'd give it a try and it was the best decision I ever made. And that was 52 years ago, 53 years ago. And uh, I've, had, I've been able to walk with Jesus for over half a century. I went on crusade staff or crew staff for 10 years and ended up uh, uh, turning down a fellowship uh, uh, to do a PhD in nuclear chemistry to join the staff of crusade. After I did that, went to Dallas Seminary and uh, then uh, an MA in philosophy at UC Riverside and a PhD at USC under Dallas Willard. And I have been teaching philosophy for about my upper 30s, uh, 36, 37 years. And last 31, I've been at Talbot School of Theology, uh, Biola University. I am married to uh, Hope uh, Coleman Moreland, and I have two daughters married, Ashley and Allison, both in their 40-ish, and five uh, grandchildren. So uh, wow, that's my story. <laughs> very busy, very busy. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm really... Uh, it kind of struck when I've read read a lot of books and, and a lot of the people that have written forwards to this book, we've read their content on the gifts of the spirit. And oftentimes those books are tied to uh, the te uh, textualism exposition of this text or that text, the theological arguments. You give an apologetic case for miracles and the gifts of the spirit, which I find really, really compelling. Um, can you maybe, and, and it's not to say that your arguments are not historical or your arguments are not textual, uh, but it's to say that you come at this from kind of right. an anti-naturalist sort of perspective, and it's very enlightening. Right. Can you speak to your inspiration on why you wrote this book? You bet. I mean, I, I am a philosopher, so I did approach it that way, though I think it's readable for the average person. Well, to be really honest with you, uh, I, I wanted to use whatever credibility I've earned over the last three or four decades to weigh in on the fact that the supernatural is real and is happening all over the place and that we need to be uh, more expectant of it. But, the, but unfortunately, you can't just choose to be to have more faith. You have to have it stimulated. And so the book's purpose is primarily to encourage people to be bold and confident that what they believe is actually true. And one of the reasons that we can be that way, one of many, is that there are ways to discern the actual presence of miracles in your life. And so as a result, I want Western Christians to not simply be propositional oriented, which I am and always have been, that is uh, being concerned about the truth of the faith, absolutely, but also being expectant about the manifest presence of the kingdom and the power of the spirit through signs and wonders. And uh, in, the, in the book of Acts and all the way up through St. Augustine in the, in the end of the 400s, the church uh, reached out in three ways. Number one, through persuasion and uh, apologetics and argumentation. Number two, through fostering people of such character that they performed works of mercy and justice and the people knew them as, as good people. But three, even up to Augustine's time and later, it was the power of the spirit in, in overt miracles. And uh, so Tertullian in the 200s writes the Roman emperor was beginning to persecute Christians. 
and he and uh, he writes to the to this dude and says, "Hey, what, why would you do that to us? Since you know full well yourself that we're the ones that heal your sick in the name of Jesus, and we cast out demons. Who'd do that if we weren't around? So you're undermining your own empire by bugging <laughs> us. Well, you don't you don't cite examples of miraculous events to keep yourself from being increasingly killed if." If you don't assume that he knows this and it's public knowledge, I mean, if you're making this up, you're dead. I mean, he's mm-hmm. dead. no doubt. So, yeah. uh, so I want that to be a part of today's uh, Western church. And that yeah. was why I wrote. Now, someone's going to say to you, JP, you're too smart to believe in miracles, and especially someone from the West. Now, you, you mentioned several times Western Christians, and I wrote this book so that Western Christians can have a different way of processing miracles. Could you talk to us about Western culture? Why are we so embarrassed about miracles? Is there something that predisposes us to be anti-supernatural rooted in our Western culture? Yes, yeah, since about the 1920s, up until the present, there we have been slouching toward naturalism. And by that, I mean uh, the view that the physical world is all you can actually know is real. And that's because... The only way we can know reality are through the hard sciences, physics, chemistry, uh, astronomy, uh, neuroscience, so on, biology. Uh, If you can test something and and it it is found valid in those fields, then you know it's real. There's no faith or anything like that. But when it comes to ethics and uh, moral claims and theological claims and claims in the humanities, they're just a matter of personal emotion and feeling. And so faith was redefined as the, the, the arbitrary choice to believe something because it, it, it seems, it feels true to you, feels good. Uh, and uh, I define faith as trust or confidence based on what we know. So the more we know about Christianity, the more we can actually place thoughtful, wise confidence in it. Uh, but most people today think that, you know, God, whoever she is, or they are, uh, whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me because the physical world is all we can really know exists because the hard sciences tell us nothing about the spooky stuff about religion. And I don't, I, I am not the slightest bit tempted because I've been spending 40 years researching the top thinkers in this area, and it's, it's, it's just a house of cards. And so uh, I want to break that stranglehold, and I've done writings and apologetics throughout my life that have attacked the foundation of naturalism, but now I'm going after the jugular, and I want, if you're an atheist and you're listening to this, and and you're welcome, by the way, uh, and, and and ask your atheist friends to join and listen, I want you to explain some of the things I recount in this book. You explain these to me, because you won't be able to. Uh, in a reasonable, intelligent way, without having to say God did, there's a God who performed that miracle, and uh, that is by far beyond reasonable doubt. And and I, and I've got cases throughout this book that I thoroughly vetted, and I based my reputation on their authenticity. And I don't wouldn't do that lightly. It's taken me a long time to build a reg- reputation of credibility, and I could blow it with, by just making this stuff up. And I haven't done that. And so uh, I, I'll you put them to the test and see what you think. So that's that's basically uh, yeah. your answer. That's yeah, good. excellent. Now you you mentioned a lot about 
the naturalistic worldview when it comes to yes. the atheist and the unbeliever, but specifically when it comes to the church. We, we live here in the West, and we, we want to have rational things that we can understand. We don't want to be gullible. We don't want to be super skeptical. And there's certainly that divide that I want you to speak into here in a moment. But can you, can you specifically speak to us about the dangers of the church adopting naturalism as a worldview and the dangers of the church adopting a worldview uh, that's void of miracles? Well, um, in a recent poll, uh, uh, five of the six reasons that millennials and younger people are abandoning Christianity uh, is because they don't think it makes any sense. It's not because the worship isn't good. There aren't small groups, which are important. I believe in all that. But it's frankly just doesn't seem they can't ask questions or they're ostracized. And the th- and let's face it's boring. I mean, uh, they, they don't see any power in it. And I think that uh, the church has bought into a view that that the word is what matters, but the spirit doesn't. Now, they wouldn't say that, but they have no practical room or theory for the Holy Spirit to manifest his power through the kingdom or through gifts or whatever. Just a case in point, then I'll, I'll stop. But Dan Wallace, who's a professor at uh, Dallas Seminary, and a cessationist with regard to spiritual gifts. He doesn't believe that those spiritual gifts that are supposedly miraculous gifts are, are for today. He wrote a book and said, uh, it's roughly, I think it was Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit or something like that. And he said his son was almost killed in a car wreck and the word was not enough for him. He needed God's overt sensory, he wanted to sense God's presence and to experience him, do act miraculously. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and, but we have leaned too heavily on the word only sign. And as a result, church can be a little bit boring. And, you know, you can explain in a year's time, 95% of what the church does, if God did not exist. Uh, All you need are intelligent, well-organized, sharp people. And you can explain what the church does, at least 95% of it, without having to appeal to God. And I don't want to live my life that way. I want mm-hmm. to be inexplicable, not because of me, but uh, of course I matter. I want to count, but I co-labor. And there should be another hand that's evident after a year and I look back over my life. What can I not explain? And there ought to be some things that are just clearly God's presence acting with me. Yeah. Okay, so uh, JP, in your book, you mentioned a story about a hot water bottle and a doll. I wonder if you could tell us that story and then maybe use that. And if you need me to remind you of this question after the story, I can. But maybe you can use that story to kind of help us distinguish. How do we distinguish between a miracle and a coincidence? How do we know this wasn't just a a crazy coincidence, because I I think that's an application that you make in your book across not just that miracle, but all throughout your book, that this is, it's important that we learn to make that distinction. So, and you can take that in whatever order you want. If you want to do story second, question first, however you want to handle it. Well, well, thanks, Michael. Um, Well, the story is thoroughly documented in the book, but very briefly, Helen Rosevere was an extremely well-known uh, a missionary woman from uh, England and, and, and the northern part of the UK. And she went and spent years and years in, 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 uh, out in the bush, in, I believe it was the Congo in Africa, uh, and she ministered to, to little children. She started a little school, 
and uh and she had been there for a long time and uh they had gathered some orphans and others and she was teaching them and leading them but they were so far out in in the bush area that that it would sometimes be four months before any mail delivery came and so they were pretty cut off from the external world um it got very cold there in in, in the winter time at night and uh to make a long story short a young lady had a a, 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 a baby and uh they the uh the baby had no place to get warm and uh they were in desperate need for uh some blankets or something but they didn't have anything except to try to lay the baby close to the fireplace but that was very dangerous and uh they, they tried that and part of the baby's skin got red and so they just they 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 got a hot water bottle and they were, they were going to put that in in the crib with this baby but the darn thing burst and they had nothing left and so they told she told the kids what had happened and the kids said well let's pray that god will provide a hot water bottle well helen rosevere didn't want to do that because she was afraid when, when it didn't happen the kids would be disappointed but she said okay well let's pray so they this one little girl said lord jesus we need a hot water bottle for you know little kelsey or whatever her name was would you would you bring one and uh, another little girl said well and while you're at it would you throw in a baby doll <laughs> and they amen and helen wanted to get out of there well it turns out that uh it was either the next day or the day after and they had not had mail for months a delivery truck came with a box of supplies that had been gathered together by a sunday school class in ohio they opened up this box and there were there were towels and things like that and they got down in and and lo and behold there was a hot water bottle in the bottom of that thing and one of the kids said keep looking for the baby doll well they they threw up a couple of other uh, linens and sure enough on the bottom of that was a little baby doll and what helen said is that this the, people don't get that it's cold over there they think mm -hmm. you're in the condo it's hot all the time so the idea of them putting a hot water bottle it made no sense because they mm -hmm. wouldn't even think that way but it was an absolute miracle no question about it and i and the story is even more interesting if you read it fully like i have in a simple guide to experience miracles now um uh, michael to your question um one of the things that hurts our faith is that when we see something like a, a specific answer to prayer the next day or two we say well you know that could have been coincidence. I, I'm not really confident that, that it was a miracle. So it doesn't have the impact on us it could have if we trusted mm -hmm. it. But we don't want to just act like we trust it when we don't. So how can you tell the difference between an, an unlu a, a lucky coincidence and a real miracle? Well, fortunately, uh, this there's an answer to this question that was developed by uh, archaeologists and forensic scientists and people in other branches of science, linguistics, and it's called the intelligent agent principle. And uh, what what scientists and we all know is that in the world there are sometimes events that are caused by by natural objects, like a, a flash of lightning is just a natural. It's not a person, and it can cause a tree to split. Okay, but other times like the, the dinner table being set, 
uh, or uh, archaeologists discovering an artifact, the cause for that is not a natural event, but a personal agent who did it on purpose. So they come up with a way of telling when a, a, a phenomenon they discovered or something that happens is either a coincidence or if it was done on purpose by a personal agent. And I, this can be applied to healings or to God speaking to me or to answers to prayer and things of that sort. And the principle says this. If the following two things occur, then what happened was the result of the action of a person, in this case, God, a big person, it wasn't a coincidence. Now, what are those two things? First of all, it has to be highly improbable. Secondly, and this is the key thing, I'll illustrate it, it has to be what's called independently special. Now, what that means is there's something about that particular event occurring that is special apart from the fact that it happened to occur. Now, I'll illustrate. Suppose we're playing bridge and we got a $500 pot that we're playing for. And on the first deal, I'm the dealer and I deal myself a perfect bridge hand. Now, uh, is that a coincidence or did I cheat? Is it something that I did on purpose by stacking the deck? Well, my hand was extremely improbable, but so were yours. Your hand were every bit as improbable as mine. So that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. The other factor is that there's nothing at all special about your hands, except that they're the hands you got. Other than that, your arrangement of cards is random and doesn't matter. But there is something special about my particular hand. According to the rules of bridge, before we even sat down to play, we could know that if anybody gets that hand, they win. So it's the fact that my hand is highly improbable and special that indicates that I did it on purpose and cheated. Now, <laughs> let me give you an illustration, another one, if you don't mind, and I'll apply it to prayer. Uh, this was actually used in the state of Ohio years ago where there was a uh, Congress, uh, an in-state congressional elections were being held for the state assembly. And out of eight districts, uh, there were ballots that had something like seven or eight different parties, the Green Party, the Libertarian, Republican, Democrat, and about seven or eight parties in all these ballots. Now, it turned out that that on all of the ballots in these eight districts, the Republican candidate was listed first. Now that's very unlikely and you could multiply it, but so would any other combination of ballots if it occurred on all the ballots. But, but this was not only unlikely, but it was special because uh, the Republican, a Republican was in charge of printing the ballots. And mm. we've learned that if your candidate is listed first, you get more votes just because of that fact. So it, the, the specialness of that result, given the Republican did it, and the unlikeliness indicated to the court that it was done intentionally and this guy cheated and, and he was fined. Now, you take the Helen Roosevelt's prayer request. Was the appearance of, of that hot water bottle 
highly improbable. Well, yeah, they don't. They didn't get stuff from overseas very often, and it was only once out of four months they ever got anything. But anything in the mail that came would probably be improbable, except maybe not blankets or what, what have you. But not only was it improbable, but there was something about the water bottle and the baby doll that was special. Namely, those were specifically mentioned in their prayers uh, the, the day, a day or two before it arrived. And so the, the fact that that box had a water bottle and a baby doll in it matched exactly what was being prayed for, and it was highly unlikely. That combination makes it beyond any reasonable doubt that this was not a coincidence, but that it was done on purpose by a really big person. <laughs> okay, really so let me, let, let me try and push back on that just for the sake of the discussion. Um, if, I, if I were to say, I'm going to play, I, I don't want to be, as a Christian, I don't want to be super skeptical, um, but also as a Christian, I don't want to be really gullible either. That right. package took a long time to get there. I think in your book, you estimated maybe five months it took to get that package from Sunday school to the people. And they're sitting there with this package. Um, one might deduce, well, that, that prayer was prayed that morning, right? The, the package was sent five months prior to that morning. And it's an orphanage. They're going to send dolls to an orphanage. Kids want toys. They send toys to an orphanage. No big deal, right? So if they're, if they're thinking of it in naturalistic terms... It can be easy to be skeptical about this specific situation, as I'm sending to an orphanage full of kids a package five months before uh, this child prayed. Um, how would you then say, okay, this for sure is a miracle rather than, you know, some kind of uh, nice circumstance uh, because of the time, uh, time period in which the package was sent? Well, that's a great question, Josh. And in philosophy, this is sometimes called retroactive causal influence. That's a big dollar 98 cent word, but I get paid the big bucks to use big words, so I've got to earn my salary. I respect uh, that. Well, thank you so much. Retroactive <laughs> uh, causal influence. Uh, this happened to me, and then I'll explain what it means. But um, I, I, I was out jogging years ago, and we were really in financial difficulty. This is in the book. And I, 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 sensed the, I told the Lord I wanted to hear him speak to me more clearly. And it came to me, why don't you ask me for $5,000 before the day is over with? And I said, Lord, I'm not sure this is you, but I'm 70, 30 at you. And that's good enough for me. So I'm going to ask, would you give us five grand before the day's over with? And at 520 that evening, out of the blue, out of a source that was just not even on the radar screen, we got... Well, it was a check for $5,200. Uh, it was an amount of $5,200 uh, that we desperately needed. And, uh, and yet that monies, those monies had to have been put in the mail before I prayed that. So it's the same situation. Now, here's the explanation for it. God, our prayers now can affect what happened in the past if the event hasn't already happened. So in other words, if the mail hasn't already come, uh, I can affect what God does in the past because in his foreknowledge, he could notice that we were going to pray for something. And because we were going to pray for that, he is moved to start the ball in motion by 
coming on to people's minds, maybe while they're asleep and speaking to them and, 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 and giving them the urge or influence without deterministically causing them to put a hot water bottle and a baby doll in that package. And, and God, knowing that when the prayer was going to be uttered, moved on them at a time when it would it would be just when it needed to be for the package to show up. What, uh, if I know all kinds of people who have received a check in the mail that was, in fact, in the book, there's a situation where a person received funding down to the penny mm-hmm. as to what he needed. But I know these cases. But, but the check had to have been cut before the prayer. And I again say that's because God, knowing that if they, if they had not prayed for that, I, I would be willing to venture God would have not put the hot water bottle in there. Because, he may have, but I think because, not because he doesn't love the baby, but because his bigger purpose is to get us involved in, in co-laboring with him and having a real difference in the course of history. So that's my explanation is that God, knowing in his foreknowledge it would happen, moved the event to be in motion so that when the prayer was made, the results of, of their moving in motion would take place uh, right after the prayer. Am By I, the way... Am I detecting Molinism in that in that foreknowledge <laughs> explanation? Middle knowledge? I don't... I, 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 I'm not saying a word here. Not, okay. Uh... I was just... I was just... Just a question. You... I mean... Yeah, you yes. you have to be <laughs> yes, philosopher yes. smart to even get Mullen. Uh, I honestly, I've I've had William Lane Craig explain it to me and and others, and I just go, I don't know. Like it's, for it's, you guys. it's pretty hard for me. <laughs> like when I when I explain Lutheran soteriology, they go, Yeah, Molinism. and I'm like, Dang it! Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I can't I can't seem to figure it out. <laughs> well, Josh, uh, I think you need to something. Okay, that, excellent. That's fine. And I explained that in the book and in and, and, and maybe a little better way than I just did. No, no, no. You did a great job. I, I just uh, I like to I like to play with Molinistic uh, theology and foreknowledge and those kinds of things. I, I get the general concepts of it, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to explain, though. <laughs> cool. So we, we've kind of delineated a little bit between a miracle and a coincidence. And then if it's a yes. if it's a miracle, it has to be both highly improbable and it has to be in some way special which you kind of gave some yes. stories to doesn't, to explore doesn't that doesn't have to be doesn't have to be because god can answer a prayer that was likely to happen anyway i mean if there's oh, a 40 chance of rain Par- and it parking comes, space prayers could, yeah <laughs> give me a parking space that, but <laughs> it it may also be natural but if if those two factors that you mentioned happen, then we know it was an answer to prayer. That's that's the main right. Point. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so now let's delineate between two different kinds of miracles. Okay, uh, I, I want to start with your definition of a miracle on page twenty seven in your book, and uh, and really I'm identifying the fact that it seems as though your definition of miracle leaves it open to the possibility that it's not God, but actually a demon performing the miracle. But let me read the definition, and then maybe, uh, and then I'll ask my question. You say, I define a miracle as an event or intervention that is caused by the special action of God or some other supernatural being that is exception that is an exception to ordinary, uh, to the ordinary law-governed course of nature for some specific purpose. So you obviously added beyond just it has to be God or some other supernatural being, which feasibly could be an angel, 
could be yes. a demon. Devils. And so devils is Josh like anytime a demon comes up, JP, Josh has to call them devils. It's True. his favorite. Yeah, but um, my, it's my Pentecostal it's upbringing. It's his Pentecostal upbringing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so talk to us about how do we uh, how do we distinguish between a miracle from God and a miracle that comes from the devil? Well, first of all, I think it's typical to define a miracle with respect to God alone. That's fine with me. But I do want to say that there are uh, angels and demons. And in the book, I have a whole chapter on how we know these are real and some stories that will just, I think, really blow people's minds about this. But uh, And they can act in the world. And they can do things that, that are not according to the laws of nature. They can in intervene and cause things to happen. So I want to leave room for that. Now, um, how, how can you tell the difference? Well, I don't know that there is a hard and fast rule. It depends on the kind of miracle. For example, if it's hearing God's voice, um, after a while, you begin to learn the way God, the texture of God's voice and how it differs from a voice that is, I don't know how to put this, but, but more finite. Yeah, more finite. Is it growl? And, uh, <laughs> you know, you get a little sulfur around now and then, but... Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, there's a good story in Acts where they heard the voice of an angel, and then they heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in the same chapter, right? Yeah. Like, so, so... Oh, yeah, it, it Acts clearly, 8. It, it, you say Acts 8? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm glad that I have Michael around so people can know that it's actually in the Bible. I just say, hey, it's somewhere in Acts. <laughs> and he's like, he's got the verse and chapter memorized. But uh, yeah, they, they hear the voice of the spirit, uh, a spirit, and then they hear the voice of the spirit, and they're able to distinguish the difference. Well, it, and it comes with experience. I mean, there is a, a phenomenological texture or, or a certain tone and texture. So now that I've, I've heard the Lord's by bringing thoughts and, and feelings into my body and mind enough times, and things have happened, then I take a look that at the event that happened and I go back and try to remember what did that sound like? What were the thoughts like? And they typically, if it's the Lord, it, it, it has a feeling of coming from outside of me. It is, it is not naggy. It's very calm and authoritative and steady. Uh, it's not shaming and there's a certain tone to it. And I, I don't know what to tell you. I've just learned through experience what that's like. I think it also helps if when you read the word, you begin to realize certain ways that God won't speak to you. Now, uh, so, and when, when a demon is, in, in, is, is demonizing me or, or a person, there tends to be more of a phoniness or a hideousness or almost a hidden agitation behind it for me. And uh, uh, I do not recall ever hearing an angel speak. My wife has, hmm. and uh, uh, she knew it was an angel. And uh, Dallas Willard saw an angel at the foot of his bed one night. Jane, his wife, told me, and uh, but I don't know that the angel spoke. So I don't know that there is a hard and fast rule on this, apart from biblical criteria, of course other than the way you learn to recognize anybody's voice, and that's through trial and error and getting used to it. My daughters sound alike, and there are times when they one will call me, and I'll think it might, it's the other one, but I generally get it right. But there are some times when I don't really know which one it is. 
Yeah. Well, you know, there's also the case that like if let's say you're holding a staff and you throw it on the ground and it becomes a serpent, for instance, and let's say right. there are some other guys, they throw their staff down and it becomes a serpent also, but your staff, your serpent eats their serpent, then then God is on your side. Solid yeah, illustration. I... <laughs> Solid. Can't can't have That's the biggest you know. idea where you came up if, with that. If if your serpent eats their serpent. Not not by the, the quality or clarity of its voice, but on whether it's stronger than the other guy. <laughs> yeah. That's right. right. I guess it doesn't eat the serpent. It's just bigger, right? I can't. Oh, uh, no, it definitely now, eats the serpent. I think it do, does eat it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah for yeah. sure. Okay, I got it right. Anyway, so I, I have a question. You mentioned this in, in your, your explanation. Maybe it was in the last question, uh, but you mentioned it in your book, these kinds of two different forms of epistemological knowledge. Like there's like these, uh, and I don't want to butcher, I'll let you explain it, but there's this kind of knowledge of, uh, I know this for certain to be true, but then there's also, I don't know why I know this to be true, but I do know it to be true. Um, and the yeah. level of authority those have, can you explain that for our listeners? Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think knowledge involves certainty in any sense of the word. But now by certainty, I'm talking about what's called rational certainty, not psychological or spiritual certainty. I think you can be certain in, in a spiritual psychological way, but epistemologically, Knowledge is basically a true belief that's based on adequate reasons, not certain, not 100% guaranteeing reasons. So I can know that God exists if I'm 80-20, let's say. It's, it, it, and that means that I know God is real if I have a true belief that's based on really good, adequate reasons. And what that means will vary from case to case. So you just have to look at the case. But, uh, that knowing is consistent with still having unanswered questions, perhaps having a doubt, admitting that you might be mistaken, but you don't have any good reason to think you are. Mm -hmm. So uh, knowledge, and then you can also know things without knowing how you know them. Now, a lot of times it's important to know how you know it. If you're exegeting a passage, it's important that you be able to tell people how you know this is what Paul meant instead of that. But a lot of times you can't go on an infinite regress of always having to know how you knew that and then how you knew how you knew that. So you have to stop with certain simple things that you just know, like I know I had coffee this morning, but I, if you ask me how I know that, uh, I, I really don't think I can answer it. I mean, if you said, well, I, you remembered it, but then you could say, well, how do you know your memories are accurate? And at some point I'm just going to have to say, well, turtles all the way I down. We live in, a, yeah, we live right. in the matrix. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd rather not go there. So uh, <laughs> yeah. you stop the regress is is the point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now the other thing that that's relevant to your question is that there is knowledge by acquaintance, which is knowledge by just experiencing something, and then there's what's propositional knowledge, which involves assessing evidence and so on. Like I know propositionally that Napoleon was a French general because the evidence for it's good. But I, I know that I experienced God's presence or that uh, I was aware of a demon in a certain situation because I was directly aware of it. And there was no good reason to think that I was uh, being uh, misguided in my, my uh, spiritual perception. 
Okay, so uh, let's say that I'm a Muslim and I'm listening to this and I say, well, I had an experience of Allah, or maybe it's maybe it's Joseph Smith who uh, who believes he had some supernatural experience and now he has to share these visions and starts the Mormon church, or any of these other people from other religions who claim to have their own supernatural experience and they just say, well, I just know because I know. Uh, I know that as a, an evangelical Christian, you believe Christ is the only way. So what would you say about those scenarios and why you can trust your knowledge, but they can't trust theirs? Well, just because somebody else is colorblind doesn't mean I can't know the apple's red. So uh, just because other people have false uh, claims, that doesn't mean I can't know mine is true. Uh, so uh, you want to be careful that just because there are counterexamples, that implies straight away that uh, that I, therefore, am defeated in my ability to know my case. Uh, I don't think that follows. And I think what I could say would be that the, the, the superiority of the quality and the uh, sheer number of cross-cultural experience of the Christian God is so far beyond the minimalistic ex alleged experiences of people in other religious traditions that there's just not much of a comparison, frankly. Mm. If I were the only one that ever had awareness of, of, of some of these things, that'd be a problem. But this is happening all over the world, and it has for 2,000 years, across cultural. So there's a sheer, there is a one factor is just the sheer quality of them and the number of miracles that have been surrounding the Christian uh, the Christian experience that is that is minimal compared to the Christian church in other faith traditions uh, and and I would say those miracles are, are the Christian God just being kind okay sometimes he just does that but the other thing is this um, I've been to the eye doctor and I have objective reasons to think that my eyes are working, whereas I have pretty good reasons to think that their eyes, they've got, they've got sand in their eyes. And, and here it is. I do not base my Christian faith on my experiences of God or, or, the, or miracles. I base it on object, the objectivity of evidence for a monotheistic personal God and the evidence that the New Testament documents are reliable and that Jesus rose from the dead. So that that carries the fundamental weight of why I think Christianity is true. Now, given that, then I'm, I'm entirely open to experiencing the voice of God or an answer to prayer, whatever it might be. And uh, if I do, then I uh, sometimes I know that that was by just direct awareness. But I have this background fountain of information that backs up my right to understand it that way. I don't think the Muslims and others do. Hmm. Yeah, so we've we've touched on other faiths. We've touched on naturalists and why they wouldn't hold to uh, miracles today. We've even talked about Christians having, you know, being very skeptical or or being very gullible. But well, what about the the individual who is resistant to miracles because of tragedy? Um, why were yes. was their kid not healed? You know. Why, why, why was that person murdered? Why did this person come down with this disease and is suffering so miserably? Um, that, that's an authentic question that I think, as an apologist, oh, yes. you have this, this very unique and pastoral opportunity to answer. Yeah, and uh, 
this is not an answer that you can give in a few minutes, but let me let me encourage your Take your listeners. Uh, in in the book, uh, uh, Simple Guide to Experience Miracles, I have a section where there are at least 14 really, really good reasons for why God withholds, why he doesn't respond when it looks like it was in his best interest to do so, and it surely seems like it was in yours. And I don't think one size fits all, but I think in addressing this question, we need to take a look at what are all the possible answers to it. And in any given case, I think a person would would look at that list and say, do any of these help me right now understand? And there might be some that would jump off the page uh, uh, that would apply to your situation now, but maybe not one, two years from now. So in some, we do have answers to this question. I'm not suggesting that it isn't extremely painful and frankly disappointing with God. I get disappointed with God when that happens. But what I do know, and this is what I want our listeners to hear, is that they can learn, they can grow in a wise, thoughtful, credible, intelligent way to to expect and to see supernatural activities that are happening today all over the world and in this country. And I want to encourage people to do one. I, I have something like eight ways to, to, be, to grow your faith in this area in the first chapter. But one of them is this. Start asking people, have you ever seen God do something supernaturally, like a healing, or has he ever spoken to you in a way that you, that you knew could not have been coincidence or answer to prayer? Start sharing stories with one another. You're going to be shocked at how many people have seen these things, but they don't like to talk about them because they don't want to brag or they don't want people to think they're crazy. So what we need to do is to start asking people to share their stories. And the the concept of witnessing in the New Testament, it's somewhere in the book of Acts, (laughs) um, (laughs) isn't just testifying to the gospel. It is bearing witness to what you have seen and heard. And that means the things that you have seen God do or heard credibly him do. Well, bear witness to those to one another. And what that does is it strengthens your expectations and you will see more happen. And that's the purpose of my book is to build people and give them practical ways to grow in in the comfort and courage of their heart. And boy, this produces boldness in witnessing. If if hmm. you're if you combine it with apologetics, uh, I think a lot of the stuff is just too goofy in in parts of the church, uh, and I think that it's a lot. It's caused miracle claims to lose credibility because a Amen. lot of it's just too, it's just too. It's not thoughtful. And uh, yeah. I want to present a third alternative. Praise God! Hey, can you remind me off the top of your head which chapter did you write in Strangers to Fire? Because I remember you you wrote a chapter. Which chapter was it that you wrote on that? Oh, gee, I can't remember. Did you? Did, you didn't. <laughs> I, Go ahead. I, but I wrote the chapter, but I you, yeah. I did, yeah. But I, I don't remember which one I wrote. Uh, <laughs> of course, even if you remembered it, how would we know? How that could your we honestly was, was... know well, that you were the one who, I mean, who wrote it anyway? Well, I felt that way. I mean, come on, give me a break. There you go. No, no, you're good. You're good. You've written so much. I, I'll let you. I'll let you slide on it. I. That's a, just another phenomenal book that tackles the gifts of the spirit, but from different perspectives. Each chapter, historians, theologians, philosophers tackling that book. Yeah. Strangers to Fire. Go check that out if you haven't yeah. already. 
Absolutely. Uh, okay, so JP, a skeptic is going to say, uh, "Hey, you, you Christians, you fail to remember all the times that your your prayers weren't answered. You prayed a thousand. You, you you have a prayer list. You're praying fifty different things a day, and you don't remember the fact that." you know, 49 of them didn't happen. What you do remember is that one that happened. You go and you tell your friends, you make a testimony video and you show it in church and look at this big answer to prayer. And JP writes about it in his book and everybody says, God answers prayer. And, and so it's a great it, illustration. And so the skeptic is going to say, you guys are, you guys just have a confirmation bias. Confirmation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you what would be your funny, response to that? Yeah. Well, you, you know, what's so funny about this is it, it's exactly the opposite. I know Christians because I've lived around them for 53 years. They are painfully aware of all the times God doesn't answer prayer. They don't, <laughs> yeah, we, they don't forget. They're still angry that. about something. I heard that. So people are completely aware of when God didn't didn't do something they asked for or didn't heal somebody. But but so but the atheist is unwilling to acknowledge that there are occasions when it does happen. I mean, I was on a show just uh, uh, previously about this book, and uh, this the host had an unbelievable miracle happen to him. It was clear it was a miracle, and he was debating Michael Sherman and Sh- Shermer, and Shermer said, "Well, I, I don't know. I don't have an explanation for it." And it fit the design filter perfectly. It was obviously a miracle, but he wasn't. You, you was it a? You think it could have been a miracle? No. Well, so he he doesn't. They're not willing to acknowledge the right ones, but we are uh, the vertical ones. We are willing to acknowledge the non-vertical ones. And mm-hmm. one final point. One final point. This is a this is guilty of the gambler's fallacy. The gambler's fallacy is the idea that because I've had twenty heads in a row, uh, when I flip the coin, that increases the chances the next one's going to be tails. That it isn't. Because it's still 50 50. Mm-hmm. It's the gamble fallacy. Now, from the fact that all the prayers that I've had so far weren't answered and they weren't miracles, or ones that I thought were miracles to ended up not being, it doesn't follow that th- this one isn't. That's the gambler's fallacy. Mm-hmm. This event has to be assessed on its own merits. And the I- intelligent agent principle is a scientifically tested, developed way of telling that difference. They need to answer those cases. It's not confirmation bias. That is an objective criterion that scientists use in in other areas of discovery. And and so it it has nothing to do with confirmation bias. Excellent. So I've got a question because you've mentioned miracles. You've staked your career on some of the miracles that are listed in this story. Have you talked about peer-reviewed kinds of miracles that people have looked at and said, there's just no way this thing could have changed or shifted in this regard. I know there's a lot of work right now with our our friend Elijah Stevens, Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Craig Keener and his works on miracles. Uh, Could you you maybe point us to some of that peer-reviewed, documented uh, stuff that we have on miracles? Yes. In the the book, uh, I have a section on medically documented miracles that were published in medical journals. And they're just peer-reviewed. They're clear. I mean, you have to read the stories themselves, but there's no other rational explanation. Not only that, but there have been so many near-death experiences that physicians have observed and learned the patient new things that he could not know, or she, if it were just oxygen deprivation or some a dying brain, you know, things like what happened in the 
cafeteria two floors down in the hospital and the, and the and it's in the medical records so my chapter on ndes provides additional medical documentation of real near death experiences and where people left their body and saw things and reported it to the medical staff and they were blown away cuz they they that was what happened but they were dead when it took place so those i've got cases in the book uh, and I just have to refer people uh, to those, and, and they're documented. Okay, so uh, JP, let's maybe shift and talk a little bit of church history. You talk, I think it's chapter five, where you uh, share from church history, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Quadratus, Origen, yes. Augustine, and, and you share just kind of some of the things that they had to say about the miraculous and uh and it seems as though the miraculous continued quite well in uh, through the patrist, pat, patristic era, but then yes. after that, it seemed to some would argue, at least, and maybe, but just some would argue that it dissipated after that. So, yeah. what does it tell us that miracles continued into the patristic era? Number one, yes. and number two, what does it tell us that perhaps it diminished after that? At least for a That's season. That's a great question. I think I think uh, I reference a book by Francis McNutt called "The Nearly Perfect Crime," that shows that even after the patristic period, there were sprinkles of miracles, but then they began to break out at certain points, but then wane. Uh, but uh, it, for example, there's a book by I think Yale University Press that I document uh, in in the book. But during the time of David Hume, there were highly documented cases of miracles happening all over the UK. These were documented and they were people in the villages that knew these people were in wheelchairs and couldn't walk. And after prayer suddenly got up and started walking. Uh, so so <laughs> miracles are breaking out at just the time Hume was arguing against them. It's just so ironic. And this Yale, this historian who wrote this book, I think she's at Princeton or something, uh, uh, said it's very ironic <laughs> that, that, that that happened, but but they did wane. Uh, the spigot was was just had a drip, but it wasn't entirely shut off. And here's why: um, after the church became official part of the Roman government, it began to lose some of its edge, and it began to rely upon the state uh, to protect her rather than on God and the supernatural. And so, what mm. happened? was that Christians began to look to de-emphasize the supernatural uh, and they lost some of their power because they were becoming too wrapped up in the state. As a result of that, believe, now believe it or not, as a result of that, when the church tried to show that they were able to produce things that other religions couldn't, uh, they couldn't appeal to miracles anymore, so they appealed to saints. That means mm. more, more superior, spiritually and morally superior heroes. Now, the way that you can become a saint quickly is to suffer. And so in order for the church to show the superiority of the Christian gospel, one way was to show the results in these highly powerful spiritual and moral people we produce. And so praying for the sick actually became a bad thing. Mm. Because you were you were pre, you were uh, preventing people from experiencing the very thing they needed to become mature and and heroically spiritual people, namely suffering. Now that's just upside down, but that's what happened. 
Excellent. No, that's super helpful. Thank you so much for that. I've got a question in here, and this I think might be one of our, our, our wrap-up questions before we, we get some final thoughts. Uh, but this is on page 98, chapter 5. Uh, you said, I was taught that Jesus's miraculous power, uh, the, 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 uh, miracles, I'm sorry, Jesus's miracles proved he was God because he did them from his divine nature. In the years since that time, I have become convinced that this teaching was incorrect. And I now believe that Jesus's public ministry was done in his humanity as a perfect man doing independence, uh, uh, perfect man doing independence. Uh, doing it in dependence on the filling of the Holy Spirit that he saw yep. his father doing. Now, can you speak into this and how this has an application to the believers who also yes. want to be dependent on the Spirit and your kind of application yeah. point in, in stating that? Right. This is huge. And let me just say that New Testament scholars are uh, just coming to unanimity on this. And uh, Graham Twelfth Tree, who wrote a a massive like 800 page book on Jesus's miracles for IBP. Uh, and he is a, vine- he was a vineyard pastor for a while. He hmm. said, he said this shift radically changes pastoral ministry because if Jesus performed his miracles outside as a result of his divinity, then we're, we're grateful that they prove he's divine, but they don't have any, particular application to me, except that we should reach out and love people and try to, you know, be merciful to them. But if Jesus performed these as a human being, as he tried to discern where around him God was moving as best he could, and we're probably not as good as that as he was, but, uh, and also in reliance on the spirit, what that means, says 12 tree, is we can do the things Jesus did. So when he says more, even more will you do than I did, that has actually happened because there have been more resurrections from the dead and the world throughout his body than there were when he was in his physical body. But now he's got a different body, us, and there have been more healings. There have been more resurrections from the dead. Uh, There have been far more blind people have sight restored. Uh, because people were imitating and trying to uh, risk doing the things Jesus did and get better at it. So uh, this means then that we should, as a part of a local church, try to wisely imitate some of Jesus's practices and have room to pray for the sick or to deliver people from evil spirits uh, to uh, to. Uh, teach people how to hear God's voice in dreams and uh, in other ways, uh, because these are things Jesus did as a human. Huge difference. Excellent. Hey, uh, so thrilled to have you on. Thank you again so much for coming on the show, JP. And uh, we might, if you're up for it, just have you come back on and do chapter six and just talk about the stories and just talk about the miracles. We we did this with Dr. Keener, uh, just kind of going through, hey, just share us the stories from your research, that the just faith-building, exciting stories. And it was wildly popular and uh, very helpful to the body of Christ, build up their faith. Yeah. So, so we'd love to get you back on. Uh, we'll, we'll probably schedule a time yeah, to do that. And, and also, JP, I don't know if you knew this about us. We tend to uh, to manipulate people into saying yes by asking them on, on air. air. That's, that's right. That's yeah, we want to record us asking yeah. someone to come on. <laughs> you know, it, it helps. Hey, we, we've yeah, noticed. Yeah. Yeah, well, so. and the compliments that you uh, you gave me kind of made me unable to say no, actually. Yeah, so <laughs> so, so it's working. It is, <laughs> although I do, 
kind of fallback, and that is I always agree to on the air, but when you call me, I say, you know, something's come up, and I'm just going <laughs> to ah. You heard it here first, people. You heard it here first. Um, if JP doesn't come back on. <laughs> if he doesn't come on, you, you know, know it's on something him. Something came it's up. All, something came up. Uh, uh, but, but uh, again, wildly, wildly impactful. Thank you so much for uh, your work on this book, uh, A Simple Guide to Experiencing Miracles. You guys can pick that up in the description of this video. I would love to toss it over to Michael for some closing thoughts, and then I'll toss it over to JP uh, to get some closing thoughts before we wrap up the show. What's, what's that one thing you want people thinking about meditating on uh, you know, as they walk away from this video? Yeah, uh, I, I think for me, it's, it's simply this. Expect miracles. Yeah. Believers should walk in miracles. I mean, uh, the, the book of Acts is a, is a blueprint for what the church is to look. I, I often hear people say, well, it's just descriptive. It's not prescriptive. This is, this is God's book telling us what normal church is supposed to look yeah. like now that we've been, Acts 1-8, baptized in the Holy Spirit, that we might be yeah. witnesses. And I love that, that up through the patristic period, the, there were miracles pouring out, and that Tertullian could say, Who's, who else is going to cast your demons out if you get rid of the Christians? You know, that, that yeah. nobody's saying those kind of things in the Western world today. That's right. <laughs> and so it's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And so I would just encourage you guys to, in faith, pray for these things. Pray that you would that God would use you to open blind eyes, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, whatever it is, and, and to pray specifically for those things. And what I have found in my life is that, uh, is that we can have whatever we're willing to labor in prayer for. And that, it, and that if we persevere in prayer, we really will see these things. And I have some, some of those types of miracles. I've not seen a blind eye opened yet myself, so I still pray for that. Uh, but I have others that, that the Lord has allowed me to see over the course of time as I pray for it. So uh, this book, uh, A Simple Guide to Experiencing Miracles, is really going to encourage you fa- in your faith. Uh, but uh, So read that uh, and really be praying specifically that the Lord would use you in miracles. And then take the risk, step out in faith, and pray for somebody. Excellent. Uh, JP, same thoughts. Well, well, thoughts. whatever's going on in your life, uh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Uh, it may not turn out the way you want, but there's no irredeemable harm that can come to you. Harm can come if you get martyred, but that's not irredeemable. And it's all going to be okay because what we believe honestly is true. It really is. And so you can relax and not be so uptight about the things that you're intimidated about because it's going to be all right. God has got you and he won't let anything happen to you that is not able. He's not able to bring good out of. And uh, you can trust that. Amen. 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 That's good. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you're out there, this video has blessed you and you want to check out other content we've made. Uh, tons of playlists. We'll link a playlist at the end of the video uh, that we've done on gifts of the spirit. Uh, We do a weekly show on Wednesdays covering the gifts of the spirit. Uh, Lots of great content that we have produced. So check those out. But also remember that we're entirely crowdfunded. Uh, So if you've been blessed by our content and you want to help us produce this stuff, you can in the links of the description, both on PayPal or Patreon. PayPal is a one-time gift. Patreon, uh, you can give monthly as low as five bucks a month, be a part of our book club and other exclusive content we have there on Patreon. Uh, without, Without further ado, uh, you guys stay tuned every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Hit that subscribe button. Yeah. Sub. If you haven't already, come on. Get with it. Become a sub. That'll do That's it. YouTube language. It is. Yeah. It's very hip, Michael. Yeah.
Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.